Welcome, guys, to another episode of the Coal Region Campfire. Um, <clears throat> as some of you guys probably figured out, I, I do a lot of these interviews uh, a couple weeks in advance because of my work schedule. I try to get as many in the can as possible just so we have them on a weekly basis. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Dr. Dalbin, I guess, about three or four weeks ago. And uh, when I interviewed him, uh, I knew he had been sick, uh, but he definitely gave... Uh, no indication um, that, you know, he would pass uh, this quickly. So when, when I got the news uh, last week, I definitely was uh, very surprised. Um, but at the same talking, um, very appreciative uh, that I had the chance to sit down with him and, you know, talk about his career. And, and, you know, I think he had just as good a time talking with me as I did with him. So, again, I think you guys are going to find... Uh, that his career in football was uh, quite uh, impressive when you take into account just the different leagues he played in, you know, being at the forefront of uh, what the NFL is today. I mean, you know, in the 70s, obviously it wasn't as big as it is today, and uh, he was there kind of, uh, you know, putting the bricks down uh, for the foundation. Um, Definitely well-respected in the area. Um, And again, I had never talked to him before the interview, um, he was incredibly gracious and again, uh, definitely a loss to the community and, uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers go out to the entire Dalvin family. And, um, I think that's it. I, I know some of the times this situation, you don't know exactly what to say. Um, but again, uh, the, one of the reasons I do do this is to kind of preserve, uh, the history that we have. And, uh, I'm thankful that he was able to sit down with me and uh, kind of talk about his career. Um, so, guys, here it is. Take a listen. Thank you. All right. So, Jack Dalbin, local uh, legend here, football legend. I have a couple things here I want to get started on. Uh, but, Josh, your son, told me the first thing, you know, before there was possible, before there was Wake Forest, the Broncos, Pottstown Fireboards, there was the Howard Avenue Worms. <laughs> we had... A, uh, a team of, of local kids. I mean, I was raised on Howard Avenue, and there were about 25 kids between 12th Street and maybe 16th Street. And uh, Dick Yingling was, was one yeah, of them. Yeah, he talked about it a little bit. The Norton boys, uh, Charlie Hummel, you know, and we were all in this mix. And other than my brothers, I was the youngest in that entire group. So when we would choose sides, if somebody didn't get chosen, it was usually me. But we had a team, and we... Uh, Bob Siegfried, who was the warden at the local prison, was the coach, and uh, we called ourselves the Howard Avenue Worms. And then George Farney and Mickey Arthur and Rick Laubach and that crowd formed another team in Norwegian Street called the Norwegian Street Snails. Hmm, and, right. and we actually, I don't know how many games we played, but we would play uh, touch football in the street, and uh, in the back alley we would play pickup basketball games. And I don't know if we, if we ever really um, determined who had the most wins and the most losses, but uh, it, w- it, was, it was just a lot of fun. And we're talking about growing up uh, in the 50s and the 60s, which was a great time to sure. grow up in Pottsville. Now, you said you were the last pick. I mean, were you quickly the first pick when they saw your speed? Well, Dick Yingling has become a close friend, but he was the town bully. Uh, on he that he street. didn't talk about that. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about Dick. <laughs> Uh, growing up, he was, I, and I can't use the words on the air, but he was the... You actually uh, can. This is a podcast. Okay, he was a son of a bitch. Okay. 
and he was the bully. And uh, later in life, he and I got to be good friends, but we weren't good friends for a long time. I used to have to figure out how to get home from school to avoid Dick Yingling. <laughs> and it, it, got, it got even worse. Dick and the, um, most of the kids went to Garfield School. Okay. Now, this is back in the days when we had neighborhood elementary right. schools before John Clark. My parents had to send me out to Yorkville School, even though I was in the Garfield District, just to keep me away from Dick Yingling. Oh, my gosh. Well, anyhow, the, the um, end of that story is that Dick Yingling took credit for me being able to run so fast <laughs> to, just to get away from him. <laughs> but uh, he, he's turned out to be just a great guy, and he's been great for the community. And uh, he and 18 others came down to the Super Bowl in Louis Finelli's Winnebago. Oh, get out. I bet that smelled real good by yeah. the time they got there. But uh, he, he's turned out to be one of my closest friends. That's a great story. Now, I, I was doing, you know, doing a little research. Was it your grandfather who was a world record holder at one time for 100 Yeah, years? my grandfather. And back in those days, we're talking about 1915, 1916, um, they timed in fifths of seconds. Okay. Not tenths of seconds sure. like they do today. And they ran 100 yards, not 100 meters. And my grandfather ran for Penn State and later the Germantown Boys Club, which is no longer in existence. But at one time running AAU, uh, he ran a nine and three-fifths 100-yard uh, dash, which at the time tied the world record. Huh. He also ran a 20 and four-fifths 220, which even by today's standards is um, world-class time and in those days they did it on a dirt track without yeah. starting blocks so and you know probably not the best of spikes and everything not else. the best of equipment or training methods or anything else so I, I think you know my dad and my uncle donald were quick my dad held the pottsville record for the hundred and long jump for quite a number of years and uh, i guess i inherited their type two muscle mm -hmm. fibers <laughs> now was was track you know, obviously, it was probably in the forefront. Did you ever think that you could kind of translate that to football? or? Well, my dad wouldn't let me play football. My dad didn't. Uh, he was afraid of injury. And um, in eighth grade, I brought home the uh, signing sheets for Pottsville Midget Football. And my mother signed my permission slip to play. My dad didn't even know I was playing <laughs> until one night at the Pottsville Club, which at that time was down on Montunga Street. Somebody came up and said, hey, your kid's a pretty good football player. And my dad went ballistic, came home yelling and screaming. And, but the next time we had a game, he came out to the game. And then he kind of got into it because my, my middle brother and I were playing for the Panthers. And uh, we were doing pretty good. So that was kind of the stepping stone to get into uh, high school football, but it was always assumed growing up in the family that track would be my sport. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and quite honestly, basketball was my favorite sport, even though I was, oh, you know, only average. But uh, I loved track. And even, even in college, uh, I, I, loved, uh, I loved track. Now, at Wake Forest, did you run track there too? I ran track. In fact, I held the 100-yard dash record for almost 20 years. And the 220, maybe even today. Now, they don't run sure. yards anymore. They yeah. run meters. So I, I haven't kept track of it. But, yeah, I was injured. You know, I showed up with a broken leg. And uh, then I played well my sophomore year, made all ACC, and led the conference in yards per carry. My junior year, I tore my ACL. My senior year, I broke my ankle. 
So really, it ended up track being my, my sport because uh-huh. I was injured most of my um, college career uh, playing football. Now, how did you fare out with at Pottsville High School? Did you, I mean, did you just place in, I mean, obviously you had a place in, in states, right? Yeah, well, we had, um, uh, Bill Flynn was our coach my freshman year, but I didn't play varsity. I played JV. Terry Case was the coach. And going into my sophomore year, Coach Flynn went to Chicago to coach at Brother Rice, which put him closer to his hometown of Gary, Mm -hmm. Indiana. So our new coach was Bill Ruddy, and he didn't know any of us other than by name. He didn't know anything about our backgrounds. So uh, I played JV most of that year, and uh, I was brought up to varsity uh, a couple games, and I ended up lettering that year just running back punts. You had to get 20 quarters okay. to get a letter. All right. I got 20 quarters just running back punts. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I did. So yeah, I, I guess I got a letter, but kind of backdoor. And my junior year, I, I played. Uh, I missed the first two games with a broken thumb, but I played the rest of that season, and I think I rushed for a little over 1,000 yards and 10 touchdowns. But that was a great team. Uh, that was uh, a 10 0 and one team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tied Berwick, or they tied us, maybe. But we had um, a lot of guys went on to play Division One football. People like Art Aloyas at Pitt, Ray Heinley, University of Miami, uh, Rick Laubach. Rick Laubach, interesting story. He turned down a full ride to Clemson to go to Lehigh. Get out. Because, no, he just wanted to stay local, wanted to be an engineer. And uh, Rick... Just um, Good punter, right? Oh, yeah, over, over 40 yards. In fact, although he wasn't drafted, he was um, made an, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs made him an offer to be a punter. Hmm. He averaged over 40 yards in high school, which was pretty much yeah. unheard of. Yeah. And he didn't take it? or Not while well, he went to Lehigh. Wow. Yeah, so <laughs> we kid him about that because Frank Howard, and I don't know if you know much about the history of, of Clemson, but Frank Howard was the coach, and back in those days, there was only one team in the ACC that recruited black athletes, and that was Wake Forest, where I went. Hmm. In fact, I was offered um, scholarships by Mississippi State and Auburn, but my dad wouldn't let me go to a segregated, segregated school. So I ended up going to Wake Forest. But when Rick was, and Rick and Ray Heinley uh, went down to a recruiting trip to Clemson, and Frank Howard was kind of a grisly old southern guy but the uh, recruiting uh, strategy was to remind them that in two years they were going to play southern cal in california and he was going to take the entire team to disneyland oh that's a good well, selling point anyhow rick was more interested in education he went to lehigh ray went to the university of miami and uh, they both had great careers huh now so you go to wake forest you you graduate then you hop on, was it the, the Firebirds first or the School County uh, uh, Coal Crackers? No, I played for the Firebirds first. I, I was um, offered a contract by the Pittsburgh Steelers, and they weren't very good in those days. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't know, and which was pretty, um, maybe a, a good reason I didn't accept their offer, that same year they offered, uh, or they drafted Mel Blunt and uh, Donnie Shell, and they wanted me to play defense. Hmm. Well, looking at the team that they had, maybe I could have made the team, but I don't, I'm not going to play ahead of Mel Blunt or Donnie Shell. <laughs> so anyhow, Ron Waller, who was um, 
assistant coach with the Pottstown Firebirds, Dave DiFilippo was the head coach, contacted Bill Dimmerling, who ran a local uh, TV affiliate. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what the channel was. But he called me one day and he said, they're trying to get in touch with you. So I drove down to Pottstown and I met with Ron Waller. Now, Ron was all pro at one time for the L.A. Rams, um, All-American at the University of Miami, second or third in the Heisman Trophy balloting. He's just a great, great football player. But he said, uh, you, you, you're too small to play running back. And um, the only position you can really play is wide receiver. He said, I will teach you how to play wide receiver. So every weekend leading up to the start of the season, Ron Waller and Ronnie Holiday, who ended up with the San Diego Chargers, and Jimmy Corcoran, who yeah. called himself the king. The king, right? Nobody else did, but yeah. he did. We would go down to Bethany Beach, where Jimmy lived, and we would catch 100 balls a day. And Ron Waller taught me how to run pass patterns, how to read defense, just how to receive the ball, not catch the so ball. So you never played wide receiver until then? I never played wide receiver, no. Okay. So I played that year with the Firebirds. When the season was over, I was offered a contract by the Chargers, but Pottstown wouldn't release me. And um, Frank Wapinski said, well, why don't you play for us? Well, the contract I signed with the Firebirds, which now had moved to Norfolk, Virginia, prevented me from playing with any team in the United States. Hmm. Well, I showed that to Frank Wapinski. He, he didn't care. You know. Yeah. He said, what are they going to do, sue us? So I played that year with the, fire, with the Coal Crackers, along with some other... Was it Mr. Norton on that team? Uh, no, John Norton was not on that oh, team. Okay. He had an injury the year before where I, I think he hurt his knee and later hurt his back. But my brother played on that team. In oh. fact, my brother led the team in tackles and interceptions. So they paid me $100 a game, and they paid my brother $25 a game. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, some other holdovers from the Firebirds came up to play that season. And, you know, the Firebirds won the championship in the uh, Atlantic Coast League, and the uh, Coal Crackers won the championship in the Seaboard Football mm -hmm. League. So, you know, we, we just had a lot of fun. But after the uh, Coal Crackers, I wasn't getting any offers. And I decided to go to graduate school, later chiropractic college, out in Chicago. And that's where I was given an opportunity to play for the Chicago Fire and the World Football League, which kind of got things started because then I started getting noticed by NFL scouts. Yeah. And that opened the door to me ended, uh, finally going to Denver. Yeah, now the, the World Football League, the idea was to play it all around the world, right? I mean, when they originally started? Well, when they originally started, yeah. Um, it, was, it was only the United States at the time. Because they had a team out in Hawaii, the, right? Well, we, at, yeah. Yeah. Team, and we, in fact, we played in Hawaii. In, in fact, an interesting story. I, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But when we played in Hawaii, uh, they flew us out first class. We played a game in uh, Portland, Oregon the night before. Flew out to uh, Honolulu. We played the Hawaiians in the old... Um, like where they used to play the Pro Bowl? Where they used to play the Pro Bowl and the Hula Bowl. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. right yeah, yeah. And the locker room was just fenced in. There was no privacy. <laughs> I mean, the stadium maybe sat 25,000. But um, we had, f they flew us first class. 
we stayed at the Holiday Inn, uh, Waikiki. All the meals were first class, you know, steak and eggs in the morning, New York strips in the evening. It, it was great, and the league was doing well. The last game of the season, we played in Memphis, and our pregame meal was cold cheese sandwiches. <laughs> so we kind of got the idea the league was in trouble, which it was. They, it folded after that last game. And um, at the time, I'd attracted some attention, and I was offered some contracts by the um, Washington Redskins, Detroit Lions, Cleveland Browns, and the Denver Broncos. My wife said, I'm not living in Washington, Cleveland, or Detroit. So the only place left was Denver, (laughs) yeah. So I ended up signing with Denver. And, you know, it it was was a a, a tough one because they had a lot of veteran wide receivers. And their fifth-round draft choice was a kid named Rick Upchurch out of Minnesota who was a good wide receiver. So we we had a rookie camp in Denver where I ran a 4-3-5-40. And that got their attention. That might. And then we ran out, went out to Pomona, California, where we had our training camp. And on grass, I ran a 4-4. So that, again, opened their eyes sure. immediately. So the first game of the season was against the then Baltimore Colts, preseason game. Um, and I caught a 93-yard touchdown pass. And I ended up having a good preseason, and, and I made the team. Now, getting back to the, really quick, the World Football League, for, for the listeners that don't know, I mean, you said your last game was in Memphis. Larry Zonka was on that team, correct? Larry it, Zonka was on the Memphis along with Jim Kick and Paul Warfield. And Ken, Kenny Stabler was in that league. Kenny Stabler, he played, uh, I think, with a, a team in, in California. Uh-huh. Yeah, there were a lot of guys because, uh, coincidentally, 1974 was a strike season. Oh, right. So okay. the NFL was out on strike. So a lot of guys like Kenny wanted to play football. Sure. So they ended up jumping to the World Football League for that season. And, you know, with the Chicago Fire, we had like Reuben Carter, mm-hmm. Mark Keller, um, you know, a lot of NFL veterans that just wanted to play football. Yeah, sure. So they jumped to the WFL for that one season. Yeah, the uh, the other thing too at the Pottstown Firebirds, if if you Google on YouTube, you'll find the whole NFL films thing. And I mean, you know, you mentioned Dave D. Filippo. I mean, he seemed like a character, the, the king. Um, and you guys played a was it a twenty game schedule for the Pottstown? Fire? No, no, we only played twelve games. Oh, twelve games. Yeah. Where did I see you played twenty games? Was there ever the World Football League? Oh, the World Football League. That's right. Okay. We scheduled twenty. We played nineteen. Okay. They canceled the last game of the season. So that's. Every week, I mean, that's a long season, huh? Well, we played Wednesdays, and um, a, a TV a network, I don't know if the NBC or ABC, picked up the World Football League, So, and those games were played on Thursday nights. So we actually played a couple uh, TV games on Thursdays, but regular season was Wednesday. Hmm. And, you know, the first game of the season, we played in Soldier Field against a team from Houston, and we had 45,000 people really? show up for the World Football League. And the league was doing great. And then midseason, the NFL settled the strike. Sure. Guys jumped back, and um, we, we started struggling. Now, you get to Denver. Um, obviously, we'll get to the Super Bowl and everything like that. But you know, I was looking up kind of the, the, uh, the, the scattering report on you, and it was, you know, 
durable and tough and fast. And that kind of <laughs> that kind of uh, you know encompasses the whole coal region attitude. Uh, it's it's just neat to you know that you make a, a, an impact on a, on a huge stage like that. Well, you know, I was trying to make the team, mm-hmm. so I did whatever I had to do: run back kickoffs, run back punts. But back in those days, wide receivers had to block too. Mm-hmm. Unless you played for Oakland. Right. And then you never got your uniform dirty. <laughs> but we had to block. So, um, and back in those days, we could throw crackback blocks. So one of the earlier games of the season, uh, the outside linebacker on that side of the field uh, for the Oakland Raiders was a guy named Ted Hendricks, six foot seven. <laughs> well, again, I'm trying to make the team. So I ran as fast as I could and I hit him as hard as I could and knocked, knocked him on his ass. So I got a reputation, a guy named Steve Wright, a veteran tackle, named me Jack the Giant Killer. <laughs> so I could run, I could catch, um, I had the toughness that people in the coal regions had. You know, that's yeah. the way we were brought up, from the Howard Avenue Worms through the Crimson Tide. You know, you, you were taught to play the game tough. And I think that was one of my redeeming qualities. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I played at college, even college coaches would always say that when they get a guy from the coal region, they know they're going to be they're going to be tough and, and reliable, you know, and it, it kind of lives with you. You know, it, it's a big kind of reputation to carry, but it's a good one to carry when we when we, you know, go and play to. Well, when I when I went off to Wake Forest, the coal region reputation followed me because mm-hmm. at that time, uh, Wake and many of the ACC teams recruited Pennsylvania. And when you showed up. At a, at a school, there were a lot of recruits there from the south, and uh, they had heard about the coal region, coal region football, and they wanted to test you, you know. So they came at you, yeah, you know, and, and you had to, you sure. know, kind of defend uh, the toughness label. Uh huh. Now, you were also in the in the semi pro hall of fame, and that's a big deal. I mean, Johnny Unitas is in that. Johnny's uh, in there. Vince Lombardi, Bill Walsh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those are some pretty big names. How does it feel to kind of uh, be in the same Hall of Fame as them? It, it's very humbling. You know, and, and as you know, Johnny didn't make the, uh, the team, the Steelers, the first year. Now, you say Johnny. Did you, like, know him personally? Johnny Unitas. Yeah, you know, another part of the story. Yeah. When, I, when I mentioned going down to Bethany Beach uh-huh. to work out with King Corcoran, well, well, Jimmy the King Corcoran had a house on the beach right in between Johnny Unitas and Harlan Savari, <laughs> who was the head coach of the San Diego Chargers. Wow. So they didn't work out with us, but we would lay on the beach or play miniature golf at a local right. motel that had a golf course with these guys. So, yeah, we got to know them. Yeah. Now, now when you played for Pottstown, too, I mean, that was kind of like Bull Dorm, right? You guys are just on the road 600 miles sometimes for a trip, like on a bus. I mean. Well, we took a bus to Indianapolis one time which is more than 600 miles yeah. play out there. We took a bus to Roanoke and Norfolk. When we played Orlando, uh, Ed Gruber, the owner of the team, uh, did fly us down. That was just too long to take a bus. Right, yeah. But most of the games, uh, it was a league, I guess the furthest west was Indianapolis, but it was pretty much an East Coast team. Uh-huh. Orlando to the south, and, um, oh, I guess... Um, Boston to the north. That we we had teams in Hartford, Long Island, Bridgeport. Um, 
you know, mostly an East Coast league. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when you got to the NFL and got to Denver, I mean, it must have been like almost like a vacation, a sense of like well, the accommodations and the amenities and just the way they took care of us. I mean, we trained in Pomona, California, and uh, we all had we st- we stayed in the dormitory, but we all had private rooms, so mm-hmm. we didn't have to room with anybody. But but an interesting anecdote. When we flew back after training camp, we flew back to Denver for our first exhibition game against the Baltimore Colts. We hadn't yet had our first cut, so we had to sit three across on the plane. I was sitting in between two tackles who were complaining about having to sit three across. <laughs> you know, I'm, what, five, ten and a half, 180 yeah. pounds, and I'm sitting between two of uh, 300-pounders, and I had the flashback. These guys are complaining about having to sit three across, <laughs> and we had to ride a bus to Indianapolis. You know, so they didn't know how good they had it. Now, Denver. So obviously the, the highlight is playing the Super Bowl against the Cowboys down in New Orleans. Uh, you actually led the team in uh, receptions uh, that game, even though you guys didn't win. Yeah. Um, what was it like getting ready for the Super Bowl? Well, f- for us it was almost surreal. Well, it was surreal. Because remember, Denver had never made the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Denver as a team started in 61. Now we're looking at 1977, never made the playoffs. We had a new coach, and we played the toughest schedule in the NFL that year. Mm-hmm. We played Oakland twice. We played the Steelers twice. We played uh, the Baltimore Colts, and they were a playoff team. Um, I forget the name of their quarterback now, but he was an all-pro quarterback. Uh, played the Kansas City Chiefs twice. So we played a very competitive schedule. And um, going into the season, we won our first six games. And then we had to play Oakland in Oakland. Now, a little history behind that game. If Oakland had won that game against us, they would have set a new NFL record for the most consecutive wins over a two-year period. Hmm. Not in the same year. That was sure, the Miami yeah, Dolphins. Yeah. But over a two-year period, we beat them that day 30-6. to six. Wow. So now Howard Cosell and Brent Musburger and all these guys are starting to notice us. And they're starting to show up in Denver. Right. Next week, we played Cincinnati Bengals. I caught an 81-yard touchdown against the Bengals. We beat them. Next week, we lost to the Raiders in Denver. But that was the only game we lost. Till the very last game of the season, where our quarterback, Craig Morton, was injured. He didn't play, and we'd already clinched the playoffs, so we lost to the Cowboys. So that year, we go 14-2. and two. Now we have to play the Steelers in the first round of the playoffs in Denver on uh, Christmas Eve. And it was a good game. Uh, we intercept, intercepted Bradshaw four times. Tommy Jackson, linebacker, uh, had a great game. Defense had a, a pretty good game, although they let up, I think, 26 points. But for me, the maybe the highlight of an entire NFL career, with two minutes to go, I caught a touchdown pass, which sealed the win. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was a uh, 39-yarder. And um, Mel Blunt had gotten hurt. So I was up against a guy named Jimmy, um, I forget his last name now, and um, I caught a touchdown against him, and we won the game, I think, 34-28. Next week, we had to play the um, Raiders in Denver, 
and it was a back and forth game. And uh, I caught a touchdown pass that was called back. Rob Lytle, our running back, fumbled the ball, but it, he was called down, which he wasn't down. So you know these yeah right these things kind of even out. But we won that game. I think it was twenty to nineteen, and now we're going to the Super Bowl, and that was so unreal for us. And I don't think we knew what to expect going to the Super Bowl. That was the start of the Super Bowl getting big. Mm-hmm. That game set a new record for viewers. 90 million people watched that game. Wow. And uh, that was a new record at that time. Yeah. Until a show came up a few years later called Roots, which set a, a record. Sure. And that was the record at the time. So, you know, we got to know the Cowboys and... Actually, Efren Herrera, who was a kicker at the time, was he was a good friend of mine. And uh, we'd go downtown to the local bars, and, um, and along with my friends, Yingling and that crowd, who uh, had come down for the game. And, um, you know, we, we would have a couple beers and just get to know each other. And, but, you know, I remember, you know, there's a lot of uh, stories I could tell about the Super Bowl. We got down to the um, stadium for the game a little bit earlier. We took the bus down, and we miscalculated rush hour traffic. So we got there about two hours earlier than we were supposed to get there. But the crowd from Pottsville was already there. <laughs> Matt Whitaker had printed up shirts. On the front, it said, Jack Dalbin, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, on the back, it said, beat the cowgirls. <laughs> well, we're walking across the field to get to our side of the field, the locker room, and our head coach, Red Miller, comes up to me and points to these guys up in the stands because they were the only ones in the stadium. Yeah. He said, do you know those guys? Well, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I said, yeah, they're from my hometown. He said, listen, Dalbin, anybody that would drive a 1,000 miles to watch you play football and bring their own beer because <laughs> they, they brought down... 35 cases of Yingling beer. Yeah. He said, they're okay. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, it was the game was kind of a downer. We played our worst game of the season. Four interceptions, four fumbles. And um, we, we just didn't play Bronco football. Mm. And I, I think for us, getting to the Super Bowl made the game itself anticlimactic. Sure. Just being there w- was a big deal. So, unfortunately... The Cowboys had been there a few times before. They were ready to play football, and we were just ready to play the Super Bowl, but not a football game. Right. Now, you came back to Pottsville. Was, it, was that an easy decision for you to make? No, it was very hard. Um, I liked Denver. Denver treated me well. My chiropractic practice was doing very well. But I kind of – we had a couple goals – my wife's from Roanoke, Virginia. Her family at the time was living in Atlanta. Her father was a golf pro at the Berkeley Hills Country Club. So, you know, being out in Denver, we really had little contact mm-hmm. with family. And I wanted my kids to grow up in the same environment that I did. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Pottsville in the 80s was different than Pottsville in the 50s. Sure. But it was still a good place to raise kids. High moral standards, uh, good education. You know, all my kids graduated from Pottsville High. All of them went to college on athletic scholarships, um, and, and Pottsville had a lot to do with that. You know, my son went to Villanova. 
Kevin Keating was his coach. My um, oldest daughter went to Pitt on a swimming and diving scholarship. Ned Hanford was her coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, middle daughter Rachel went to Maryland on a gymnastics scholarship, and of course that was not a sport at Pottsville. Sure. And my youngest daughter went to Auburn University on a track scholarship, and you know her track coach is Charlie Schuster and Jack Rook. Uh huh. So you know Pottsville was good to us, but it was a small town, uh, neighborhoods, uh, good people. And um, Denver was just a big city getting bigger. I must say that the fans in Denver were very good to me. But I, I just, after I retired, I had planned over the next couple of years to move back east. And we actually looked at two towns, Lynchburg, Virginia, and Pottsville. And we didn't have time to look around a whole lot, but we just decided uh, on Pottsville. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you came back and you had the chiropractic office for, for how many years do you have that? 35 years. 35 years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd still be doing it, and I plan on going back into practice once I get some other issues taken care of. Great, great. Well, Mr. Dobbin, thank you so much. This, was, uh, this has been uh, real fun. I think our listeners are definitely going to enjoy the, 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 the trip down memory lane. And uh, Listen, my pleasure. You're helping me recapture my youth. Yeah, well, I'm glad I could help. <laughs> thank you.